Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, a bit of everything. I'm Simon. And I'm Jake. And we're recording this remotely because of COVID. Obviously, we can't be in the same room. Normally, we record this in my living room, but that can't happen. No, it's not possible for me to be much farther away from you than I currently am. But That's right. uh, we're here and we're going to talk about the new gun ban happening in Canada today. That's right. And uh, particularly uh, why the government created it, how they created it, and if gun bans even work. So again, sorry this took so long. It's been literally months since our last episode. Uh, we had our law school exams and with the... the covid epidemic we had to or pandemic i guess we had to figure out kind of what was happening with school and life and everything uh we'll try to be better in the future we promise it's been rough it's been a pretty trying couple months and i hope everybody is doing okay i had to move twice because of the pandemic which has been a lot of work so i know there are a lot of people out there who are in tough situations too yeah well, I mean, that's the nature of a, a pandemic. Unexpected, of course, as mm. pandemics usually are. Mm. Um, but I think things are kind of looking up and, and you know, I don't want to say life's going back to normal because it definitely isn't. But uh, no. you know, we've kind of got settled in our new routines and, and here we are. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, here we are. But like you said, things aren't even going back. I mean, law school, everything, school's online for the next semester for the foreseeable future. So that's going to be another thing to adapt to. Yeah, that'll be weird. I don't know. That's it. Could you imagine starting law school and not going to law school? That's honestly, I think a lot of people have been considering deferring their first years if they've been accepted. And I can't say I blame um, them. I mean, is it really the same if you're not getting the Socratic method face to face with Hunt? Uh, no. That's a level of fear <laughs> that you just don't experience online. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not even just in law school, but I think in in university in general, you know, you have all these high school students that are going to post-secondary for the first time and like not actually being able to go. That's going to be so weird. You're not going to be able to have like meet new friends or meet people or or meet your professors or anything. It's I don't know. That's going to be bizarre. It's going to be strange. It's going to be strange. Anyway, we should get started. So. All right. So first question, why the gun ban? Uh, Well, fortunately, in Canada, we haven't had a ton of mass shootings. The gun ban was enacted recently because of a a very sad, very recent mass shooting in Nova Scotia. Um, Happened just like a month ago in April, uh, and it claimed the lives of 23 people and injured three others. Um, It killed, correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, I believe it was one police officer in Nova Scotia. I believe that's correct. Um, So unfortunately, another police officer killed in the line of duty. But uh, as a result, I think that this mass shooting, Prime Minister Trudeau came into our most recent election on one of his campaign promises to uh, ban firearms, especially assault assault weapon style firearms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this mass shooting was really the straw that broke the camel's back. The Liberal Party had been discussing uh, firearm legislation for the past couple months, but it got put on the back burner due to COVID. And I do think that this Porta Peak shooting was uh, the catalyst for the order in council that we see before us today. That's right. And it, it was done in an interesting way. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But um, to give you kind of the 30,000 foot view, Canadian government enacted it in what's called an order in council and they banned just over, just under, it's about 1,500 
makes and models of what they call assault style weapons, including the AR-15. And I think that's really what is the pain point for a lot of people is is the ban of the AR-15. I kind of did some research and I and I found that the 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 kind of general purpose I suppose of this ban is that the Canadian government doesn't think that these types of weapons are reasonable as they say for use in Canada for hunting or sporting purposes. Right. These fall outside of the range of guns that you would need to be a hunter reasonably is what the Canadian government is saying. And I think they chose that language for a pretty specific reason because of how they're working around the provision in the criminal code, um, which allows them to make limitations on weapons that are not suitable for civilian use uh, for hunting or sporting. And so when they classify the AR-15 and similar type guns as not suitable for civilian use, they are, I think, making a real point about people don't need these. Canadians don't need these um, but also they are trying to fit into that cutout um, in the actual legislation that allows them to yeah. do this order in council. Yeah, that's right. And in, interestingly, when I was doing the research and, and looking at the list of, of weapons that were, were banned, it was interesting to me to see that before this ban, I guess, it, it technically would have been legal to own what are known as recoilless rifles. Um, and we use those in the military as anti-tank weapons. Um, and also in falling under the ban were grenade launchers. So apparently until this ban, I guess you technically could have owned an anti-tank weapon or a grenade launcher. I don't even want to know about the hoops that you would have had to jump through to get one of those, one of those kinds of weapons, but it does <laughs> throw into contrast what was permissible, albeit difficult to acquire in Canada before this order in council. It's kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah, for, for all of you gun nuts out there that are angry, I mean, well, I guess you have a right to be angry now, but uh, you should have got that recall as rifle first, you know, before this came in. Mm. So we talk about people who have these firearms. It's not like the government is going to be repossessing them and giving people nothing. There is a proposed program in place, a buyback program, although the details of that haven't quite been finalized yet. All that was said uh, so far is that the government will probably do it they kind of said that in in the canada gazette in the in the literature about this ban that like oh don't worry we know that you know we can't just take these away um and if we the government's basically aware that if they don't implement some sort of a buyback that it'll be pretty tough to get people to participate in giving their weapons back because there's no incentive to you know if i have a friend who who just spent like 1500 dollars on an ar-15 like last year kind of crap now for him because he uh you know he's out 1500 bucks and now has a web uh, a rifle he can't use at all no it would be difficult it would be difficult to get people to comply but at the same time um i mean i agree with it i think that these people who have these weapons who just bought these weapons or even retailers who are stocking these weapons should have a way of getting compensation so that they're not out of pocket um for complying with the law um mm -hmm. I definitely agree that that is a good avenue to take, and that's going to increase compliance with the new rules. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the, I guess, the up, uproar and pushback is from the hunting and, and sport shooting industry, which makes sense. Uh, they, they contribute a pretty significant chunk to our GDP. It's not insignificant, we'll put it that way. The sport shooting and hunting industries uh, account for like tens of thousands of jobs, literally billions of dollars to the to the economy and they support 
the industry itself, the hunting industry, for example, contributes just over $4 billion to the GDP, as well as support for over 33,000 jobs in Canada. So, you know, that, that's a big deal in Canada. We want to create jobs. We want to have people working, uh, especially given the COVID thing. And I mean, not to say that hunters are feeling the, the pinch any more than I think uh, your average Canadian, but I think especially now because of this gun ban, it might be tougher for them, assuming that uh, their clients or they use any of the, the rifles and weapons that are in this ban. It's definitely not too speculative to say that this will have a large impact on the firearms industry. Not to say that they are not able to adapt, but uh, quite a few of them do sell weapons that are listed on the order and council is now restricted. And so it is going to be difficult. It's going to be tough times for some of those businesses. However, hopefully the government buyback program and the regulations will allow them enough flexibility in terms of getting rid of their stock, either in through the buyback program or internationally by selling legally and exporting these weapons that are now prohibited within Canada. Hopefully they mm -hmm. will have avenues available to them where this doesn't become the kind of order that actually forces them to close shop, because that would be a real shame for those gun owners and the employees and the communities that rely on them. Totally. Totally. Now, if if you are one of those people that owns one of these uh, now prohibited weapons, they're on the list. The order in council was effective the day that it was made. However, there is a two year, they call it amnesty period, which basically means that like if you have one of these weapons, you're not going to be prosecuted criminally if you own one. Um, the government's basically going to give you two years to kind of come forward. And, and once they sort out the buyback program and what the details of that are going to look like, I guess that would be the, the time to sell back your weapons to the government or or export them or whatever mm -hmm. you're, you're you're allowed to export them actually if you want um so you know you might be able to find someone in, in the united states or or elsewhere around the world i don't know how gun exports work i would imagine there's at least one person in the united states that would love to buy a steeply discounted ar-15 oh i can imagine one note on that amnesty period it's not amnesty as then you will be allowed to use these weapons it's only mm -hmm. you will be allowed to continue to possess them for that period of time. So don't think that just because you heard the word amnesty that you have uh, free reign on that AR-15 at the gun range. As of this order in council, you won't be able to use those weapons. You'll only be able to keep them or transport them back. Own them, yes, basically. Yes. And, I, yeah, and I believe it's not complete amnesty. It's, I think you'll get like a one-time like moving uh, amnesty to get it back to your place of residence or wherever you are storing those guns. Yeah, so, so basically how it's going to work is for these weapons, because a lot of them are restricted weapons as it is, Typically, for a restricted weapon, you have to get a permit to, for yeah. example, take it to the range or move it between houses or whatever. Um, so I think that's kind of how this is going to work is that you'll you'll be given a like one-time permit to transport your weapon. For example, if you like loaned it to a friend or um, you know, it's, you've got it at your cabin and not at your primary residence, you'll, you'll be given permission to, to transport it. Essentially, move it back to where you are going to store it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so we, we've talked a little bit about like what the order in council is, but maybe can we talk a little bit about why it was made in, as an order in council and then what is the difference between this being passed by a law? Because I've seen some confusion from people about the distinction between the two. Is there really a meaningful distinction? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So an order in council is similar to, for, for lack of a better term, at the 30,000 foot view, it's it's similar to America's uh, presidential executive order. Basically, how, how they're made is is the cabinet gets together or, or the minister or whoever is given authority in the law basically uses the order in council to create 
amendments to regulations and laws. And and typically they exist out of out of convenience, basically, because technically um, things like governmental appointments or appointment of judges and that sort of thing, technically, if it weren't for an order in council, those would have to be enacted in a law. And, and pass through parliament and get the first, second, and third readings and the committee stage and all this sort of stuff. It would right. take a very long and time. And we don't have time for that. Um, the House doesn't have time for that. The no, if, if you're just saying... Exactly. If you're just saying like Joe Blow is now a judge, like you just say Joe Blow is not a judge. You don't have to drop a law and all this sort of stuff. So that's usually what they're used for. Um, in this case, it was unusual that uh, the government did it through an order in council. I, I don't know... You know, obviously, there were some government discussions about it and why an order of council would have been the best method for this. But I, I think really what it was is because of, of COVID um, and Parliament wasn't really meeting to begin with. I think it was just the quickest and easiest. It is useful to know that the order in council is authorized under the criminal code. Um, it's authorized by statute in this case to make distinctions on prohibited weapons. Um, so that is the authority that the that the governor and council is relying on when they are making this order and council. So it, it so it is it is based in statute in legislation, and that is where its uh, power is derived. So it's not like this is this weird undemocratic thing, which I've heard some whisperings about, like oh they didn't pass this through the house. This is you know unethical or or, or whatever. This this is grounded in statute in the criminal code yeah and and every order in council is mm -hmm. so it's not like the the government or the prime minister or the minister or whatever can just all willy-nilly make these sweeping declarations of of this is the law and and i guess that's kind of the difference between the canadian order in council and like the american presidential executive order is that my understanding of the american one is that the president can just make a decree and this is now the law um whereas in this one, in order to do that, the par parliament first has to have the authority from legislation saying that, yes, you know, minister so-and-so, you may make amendments to these laws uh, without having to pass it through parliament. I'm not going to comment on your understanding of the American political system, but your understanding of the Canadian one is spot on. I, I would hope <laughs> so. <laughs> so the gun ban itself has received a lot of attention and a lot of opposition as well as support uh, for a couple reasons. And I wanted to talk about a little bit of that opposition. Obviously, there are gun owners who own the types of restricted weapons who are not happy that their weapons are now restricted and they will no longer be able to use them for mm -hmm. sporting purposes or hunting purposes. Um, like we talked about, this is 1500 types of guns, which are Granted, mostly variations on a few core types, but that is yeah. I think it was variations on nine of them. I think yeah. It's a very small. It's it's a very small base, but that does touch a lot of uh, suppliers and a lot of people who use guns. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously, these people are not very content that these weapons that they acquired legally in Canada are no longer going to be able to be used um, for the purposes that they have. And some of the complaints uh, center around this targeting legal gun owners and not actually doing much to suppress uh, mass shootings, which is, in the Order and Council, one of the objectives, one of the purposes of this gun prohibition. Talking about that, the National Firearms Association in Canada, which is sort of the equivalent to the NRA in the United States, I don't, I don't want to equate them to them exactly, but if you're looking for a parallel, that's pretty close to it. Um, they've actually come out and are going to challenge the Order and Council. Um, they said they're going to file an application 
for judicial review. And this is Guy Laverne and Solomon Friedman, two lawyers who are pretty well known for um, representing gun interests in the past. And they're looking to have it declared of no force or effect or void. Okay. And they're doing... Yeah, yeah <laughs> cool. sorry, that's a lot. That's a lot of info to digest. But basically, they're going to be they're going to be challenging this uh, this order in council. So why why are they challenging? Like obviously, like I get that people are upset and everything. But do you, do you know what their grounds are for um, for challenging? Well, their their grounds are interesting um, because, like we talked about, the order in council needs to be grounded in statute. There are a couple stipulations on things that need to happen, at least in their argument. The government can't limit farms that are reasonable for hunting or sporting in Canada. And this is in the opinion of the governor and council. What they're doing essentially is they are challenging this opinion and they're challenging it and they're saying that it's not reasonable. Their argument is that it's not really rationally connected to the policy objectives, which are producing mass shootings, and that the gun ban actually does not do anything to increase public safety interesting okay so they're saying essentially there's a disconnect between what this is achieving and the the uh, the policy outcome that that they are that is sought so the rationale for the gun ban we should have talked about this earlier but the the rationale for the gun ban was that the prohibition of the firearms was going to respond directly to a key and growing uh, public safety concern that the firearms are not suitable for civilian use um, as they can and have been used in mass shootings in canada and internationally, so I think I think the argument that that Guy and um, Solomon are trying to make is that's going to be a tough one to to prove that there's no connection between these firearms and the fact that they have been used in mass shootings internationally and in Canada because it literally just happened. Well, it's a difficult evidentiary burden, but when we say it just happened, yep. though, we're talking about the Porto Peak massacre and the types of weapons used, and there there were. There was mm-hmm. one weapon on this list, but there were also a weapon that was not listed, uh, to my understanding. And granted, these types of weapons have been used in the past in Canadian mm-hmm. shooting specifically, like Ecole Polytechnique and a few others, but not all. And I think what they're going to try and show here is that just because you ban these types of weapons, you will not actually get to the core of, of the policy, which is actually reducing the number of mass shootings, which can be done with other weapons or with um, modified weapons that aren't on this list. And therefore, there's no actual connection between the policy um, and, and its objective. And therefore, it's not reasonable. And on that ground... So I guess what they're basically trying to do is that if, if you're a registered gun owner, the chances of you engaging in a mass shooting or committing a mass shooting are not as likely as uh, a criminal or someone who doesn't register their weapon and then who would then consequently commit a mass shooting or something like that. Is that, is that kind of right? I, I, I don't know the, the crux of their argument at this point. They obviously haven't released it as part of their litigation right. strategy. And that could be one of the avenues that they take. One thing of note, though, is that there hasn't been a lot of evidence released from the government to support their findings that right. this will actually achieve the policy objective. It would be difficult for them to do, you know, with with certainty because there's not a lot of conclusive research. I mean, we have seen globally a lot of examples of gun bans mm-hmm. and whether or not those gun bans directly lead to a reduction in the numbers of mass shootings. Right. OK. Is so a matter of debate among what? experts in the field. I don't know. So so do gun bans work? Do gun bans work? That's an excellent, that's a very good question. I mean, the the government will say yes, but I I guess the question 
do gun bans work is do they reduce the number of mass shootings using those types of guns? Because this isn't an outright gun ban on all types of guns. This is specific models. And so I guess asking the question in this context, does the gun ban work? will have to be measured by, is there a reduction in the number of mass shooting incidents using these restricted weapons? And time will tell whether that's the case. And I think one of the big arguments against this, against this actually being effective, is that it's not really doing anything to stem the flow of uh, these weapons coming in illegally, being trafficked into Canada and being used, or again, illegal modifications on weapons that make them more violent or turn them into weapons that are, you know, analogous to assault style weapons. This, I think, is a pretty valid concern when you're trying to identify some of the holes in this order in council. Um, because, sure, if you ban these types of weapons, but you don't do anything, you don't put funds towards the RCMP in order to actually stop illegal weapons from entering the country or stop people from selling them illegally after this has happened, then mm-hmm. the effectiveness of this order in council is going to be greatly diminished. So do gun bans work? And does this one work specifically is a really, really tough question. And I think that's part of the reason that the uh, the NFA's case has a chance is because it's going to be difficult to demonstrate objectively that they do work. Whether or not they'll be able to demonstrate that they don't work is, I think, a different question. You know, yeah. that's that's a very different, that's a much higher threshold, I believe, to be able to say, no, they, this will have no effect on anyone trying to get a gun at all. Because I think it will. I mean, if you go with a pretty simple analogy, if, if, you're, if you're baking and you need sugar and all of your neighbors have sugar, it's pretty easy to get. You could say yeah. the same thing, right? If you know a ton of people with assault-style weapons in your shooting community, it'll be easy. But if no one has them because there's been a buyback, it'll be mm-hmm. much more difficult to acquire that weapon. And therefore, someone who'd be inclined to commit a mass shooting will have to overcome quite a few more hurdles in order to acquire the weapon to keep it. And so do I think it will be perfect? No, I, I absolutely don't think that this is going to be the be-all, end-all. But do I think it might put hurdles in the way of someone who's looking to acquire a weapon to commit, to a, mass commit a mass shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it will, because, and let's yeah. remember that the people who do this, they're not, these aren't like gang members or hardened criminals necessarily. These are people who for a good deal have a mental illness, a sudden breakdown. And so if you mm-hmm. make it harder for those people to get, yeah, if, you, guns, if you limit the access of, to the weapons they have, like, you know, it, it I suspect, I don't know for sure, but like you know, a lot of these weapons are designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible. And like the government's already put some restrictions on them, you know, limiting the magazine size and prohibiting like a fully automatic firing cycle and that sort of thing. But if people just didn't have access to weapons like that, and let's say they only had access to a bolt action rifle, you know, they'd have, it would take a lot longer to kill a lot of people, right? Because you have exactly, to reload every exactly. single time. Exactly, and, and so. you, if you're not, uh, you know, comfortable with weapons or you're not used to using them, then it will be much more difficult for you to do. So I do think that they are valid impediments that we can place in the way of people who would seek out these guns to commit mass shootings. I, I do think that this is a step. Whether or not it's going to be 100% or not even 100%, but as effective as it could be, I think is going to be dependent on other factors like mm-hmm. policing, like ensuring that there's no trafficking. Uh, but mm-hmm. but it it is, in my mind at least, one of the blocks that we can use to build, you know, a good, robust body of gun control in Canada. 
Right. And so there, there's obviously there's been other countries in the world. You know, Canada is not the first country on the planet to <laughs> implement uh, a sort of restriction or ban on certain firearms. No. Um, you did some research on Australia because that's an example that's brought up a lot. In yeah, this it's, it's, it really is, I think, one of the seminal cases for people who are in favor of gun bans to say, look, no, this has had a great effect. Because in Australia, there was a series of shootings in the 90s of mass shootings, and one particularly brutal one uh, being the Port Arthur Massacre in 1996, and after which Australia implemented a series of federally funded gun buybacks. Okay, so similar to what we want to try to do in Canada. Exactly. They put a limitation. It's a sweeping limitation. You know, lots and lots of guns were brought up. And... From that, in the period after that, I should say, there was a dramatic reduction in firearm deaths. But it is difficult to say whether or not that was caused by that or whether or not there's just a correlation because it's very, very difficult to actually perform studies that give determinative answers on these questions. I mean, we there, the, right. the things that we know, the studies on firearm control that we do know is that suicide deaths go down dramatically Um Instances of domestic violence escalations go down dramatically when there is tight gun control. But whether or not they affect mass shootings is difficult to measure. But we have seen in some mm-hmm. cases. And if you were going to look at Australia, you know, from 30,000 feet, you'd say there was a ban. And in the following period, you know, there was public sentiment very negative towards gun ownership, gun control on the large because some of these were so brutal. Yeah. And there was a large reduction in the number of mass shootings that took place so you know it's not definitive but it mm-hmm. is an example no that's that's interesting that's interesting i so i did some research as well and and i found uh an article that kind of examined a few other countries they did look at australia as well but the ones that i found particularly interesting is they looked at um japan the uk and germany okay we'll start with japan so Japan, I mean, you've been to Japan. I've never been there, but it it doesn't surprise me that there's relatively low gun ownership in Japan. The article noted that there's like only 271,000 legal gun owners in Japan. Um, So obviously that doesn't account for like the mafia or whatever. That's shockingly low. Um, Honestly, that's a very low amount of gun ownership. They also said that like according to the statistics that Japan has less than one gun related death per 1 million people per year, which, which is... Well, that would be less than, a, less than I think there's 127 million people in Japan at the time the article was written. So that's less than 127 gun-related deaths per year. They, they noted, though, that Japan is a bit interesting, and you might be able to, to talk to this just in nature of you being there. But it, it just in, in their, like, I guess, very conservative, traditional culture, it, where Japan's interesting in that criminals even hold themselves accountable to like, the high social standards that Japanese people often I, do. And so even even criminals are like hesitant to kill I people. Think, I, 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 I don't want to comment on whether or not it's something that's exclusive to Japan, but I do think that something that we're touching on here is real, which is the, the culture and the norms that surround gun use. And mm-hmm. this is connected to, but also separate from the actual gun control policy that's been implemented. I mean, if you want to look at Canada, mm-hmm. Canada does allow certain kinds of weapons, but we have a very different gun culture than does the States, than as do uh, even Japan, as does Australia. Each country has their own, I would say, brand um, and attitudes towards weapons. And I do think that these these outlooks that the people have have an impact on the way that gun violence manifests in those places. I mean, there, there are far fewer right. examples of mass shootings in Japan, but I don't know if that's tied to the restrictions on weapons or whether it's tied 
to it might just be a cultural it could thing. be but i think the like right? like okay. i don't think there is a any one keystone issue here i think i think it's a it's a coming together of a lot of different factors that play into um the actual number of of deaths from gun violence mm-hmm. and and a, a example of i guess that in just like the difficulty in drawing a, a definitive conclusion is is the uk and then I'll, I'll talk about germany as well but in the uk uh their gun ban was enacted in, in under similar circumstances to uh to canada's and then also to australia's and in that there was a, a mass shooting in the 90s and the the uk parliament just straight up banned all semi-automatic firearms uh, along with with pump action shotguns in addition to that they required mandatory registration for shotgun owners this ban was devastating in the UK. It it wiped out their sport shooting hobby uh, as as they had there, and and they, had, they you know they had heavy fines and and up to ten years in prison for going against this gun ban. And interesting to note is that the ban had very little effect on the number of gun crimes in the UK. Mm. Since the ban, there's only been one mass shooting since 1996 in the UK. It happened in 2010, uh, and it was it killed ten people. But the firearms that were used was a, a 22 caliber rifle and a shotgun. So two weapons that were explicitly banned in the UK. So, you know, even though they only had one mass shooting, it was done by a couple of firearms that were explicitly banned. It's just interesting to kind of see that, you know, gun, gun crime didn't really go down. Uh, the number of mass shootings sure did, but the mass shooting that was committed was still done with a prohibited firearm anyways. I think that underlines a really key issue here, which is that you're not going to be able to stop people from acquiring guns, but you can make it difficult. And as for gun crimes, I think that that is indicative of the fact that organized crime is still going to be able to acquire weapons or firearms, and there's still going to be violence because of that. But that isn't necessarily a problem with the legislation or the order and council itself. That's a problem with policing and how they're actually enforced. Because you can mm-hmm. ban them all that you want. If a gang wants to use gun weapons and they can acquire them illegally, they likely will. And so that is mm-hmm. you know, an after the fact. That's not really a question about what policies you put in place. That's about how you enforce them. But you do right. see it like you did in the UK with a reduction in the actual number of mass shootings where the mm-hmm. average person who doesn't have these connections through illicit gangs or organized crime, it is more difficult to acquire a weapon. Totally, totally. And a, an example of that is in Germany. So I didn't know this, but Germany has the one of the highest per capita uh, weapons in the world. Really? They have a lot of guns, which is strange. I don't know. I, I found that surprising. So their gun homicide rate in Germany is 0.05 per 1,000 people. Mm. And for comparison's sake, in the States, it's 3.34 uh, gun homicides per 1,000 people. So significantly higher in the United States. That uh, is a stark difference. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot. And incidents of gun crime, uh, and that includes both weapons being fired and used to threaten people, those have gone down by almost a quarter since between uh, 2010 and 2016. So, you know, it, it's gone down. And, and Germany has some pretty strict gun controls. Like, like you can own a gun, and it's not a problem to own a gun. But in order to get a license to own a gun, it's it's quite difficult. If you're over 25, you have to, and, and you apply for a gun license for the first time, you have to undergo pretty significant psychiatric evaluations and they investigate your family and your friends and people that live in the house with you. And 
the police are permitted to just visit gun owners' homes for spot checks. They just show up and say, hello, we're here to inspect your vault or whatever. And guns in Germany have to be locked mm. in a safe and the key and or the code for the safe can only be, the location of the key, for example, can only be known by the owner of the gun. Wow, that's pretty strict. Yeah, it really restricts the access to, to firearms if you're not the registered owner. I mean, of course, that still leaves it open for criminals to own guns, but that's that's besides the point. Like they've really cracked down, it seems, compared to a lot of other places. But you know, if you compare the the gun homicide rate, you know, 0 0.05 per thousand to three point three four per thousand in the United States, it it's quite a significant difference, like you said. So, you know, like we were kind of talking about before, it it looks like if you put in the appropriate restrictions and maybe not an outright gun ban, you know, that might be more effective in, in controlling gun crimes than other methods. Well, that's a really interesting point to talk about because in Canada, we, we do have, um, it's not easy to, to buy a gun. You know, you can't just walk into Walmart. You need to have your license. There are background checks that take place. A friend of mine acquired his gun license last year. He recently, um, I won't name him, but he recently broke up with his partner and they actually, they, they made him list her and, uh, and ca they called her to check and to make sure that he had right. no bad intent and that she felt safe. And so these are the kind of things that we do have in place already and that likely do reduce the amounts of gun violence that we have. But it's, it's tough to say whether or not this gun ban in particular is going to help. It's going to add to that existing pretty robust body of gun law that we have in Canada or whether it's, you know, not going to be as as effective i don't know i i, I honestly don't know whether don't whether know. or not this either. gun ban is the best measure i do think it will have an effect but i don't know if it is you know categorically the next step in advancing canadian gun safety no me neither i don't think so either and i think canada is different compared to a lot of these other countries that we're comparing it to in the sense that we're a pretty sparsely populated country. I mean, I guess the, the best comparison would be Australia, but we're a pretty sparsely populated country. A lot of like, I know a lot of people that hunt. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and do sport, you know, sport shooting, all this sort of stuff. I know a lot of people that do it. And I don't want to say it's a huge part of Canadian culture, but it, it's definitely a significant part of it, especially if you're someone who doesn't live in like a bigger city or a, a more urban area you know chances are if you live in in a smaller town chances are you go hunting fairly frequently or at least go to the range um that being said i my personal opinion is that i i don't think you need an assault style rifle for hunting <laughs> and that is the opinion example. of the um, prime minister and most of the legislature as well I yeah and allegedly the rest of canadians <laughs> but uh i i <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's just my opinion. You know, I would imagine that if you're a hunter, the, the kind of the thrill of the hunt is being able to down an animal with as few bullets as possible. Cause otherwise that's more chunks of metal you have to pick out of the deer or the moose or whatever you're shooting. And so, you know, you don't need a, a high, a high capacity magazine to go hunting with. Sport shooting is different in the sense that you know, I think a lot of the thrill is how many targets can you hit as accurately as possible in the quickest amount of right, time. Right, but at the same time, sport shooting, I would argue, is not as quintessentially Canadian. It's not something that people rely on either in order to, you know, help feed themselves. No. So in terms of sport shooters being affected, I mean, yes, it's not fun to have your guns taken away. But at the same time, it's not something that I think is essential. And I think that a lot of people think is essential. Yeah. And if you want to measure that loss that they'll experience versus the potential good 
that this could do. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of argument. There's a little bit of wiggle room about arguing what potential good it could do. But I think that potential good does mm-hmm. outweigh that loss. Yeah, I probably yeah. agree with you on that. <laughs> well, that's all I've got. I think we've come to a pretty good ending here. This isn't going to reduce the number of assault-style weapons in Canada to zero, but I think that given proper implementation, which we'll see, that this will mm-hmm. make a dent in making it more tough for people to acquire these weapons and to harm. I agree. I agree. Well, that's it. Um, thank you for joining us today. This has been the A Bit of Everything podcast with Simon and Jake. We'll be here next time. All right. Thanks a lot for tuning in. See you later.